Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each of our episodes, we read a saga, discuss its story, and judge the actions of the characters at The Saga Thing. Mm. Now, this is our second official episode dedicated to the saga of the Greenlanders, though the Saga Brief interview with Loretta Decker addressed a lot of the related issues. I, I feel like we've been here before. Why Why might that be? Is it possibly because this is our second time recording the intro? That could be it. Uh, we had a few technical <laughs> difficulties during our first attempts. Or, or a few technical incompetencies, but either way, however you want to look hey, at it. Hey, you're the one who didn't save our best bloodshed section properly the first time. So you should think mm. twice about bringing up incompetencies. All right, all right. And we both know what you did wrong. I don't think anyone <laughs> can prove that I'm responsible for the problems at the second recording session. Sure, John. You just go ahead and tell yourself that. But, uh, but, but, you know, I'm glad we're doing this again. I get to see your pretty face again. And, uh, it also allows us to talk about some things that we didn't get to hit in the introduction to our first recording. Wait, wait, wait. If I recall, our judgments ended up being pretty long. Yeah, that's because you love interrupting me and starting arguments mm. all the time. It's called scholarly discourse, Andy. <laughs> oh, is that what you call it? <laughs> now, <laughs> now, uh, before we get started, let me, uh, ask if you managed to read the article I posted on our social media sites. Um, the ones about the uh, temperatures of medieval Greenland. Oh, we're going to talk about this this time. Uh, so I saw the article, but I didn't get a chance to read it yet. I, uh, mm-hmm. I assume it's relevant to the saga of the Greenlanders in some way. It is, although maybe more so to your interview with Loretta Decker and the section about how awful the Greenland settlement must have been. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, one of my favorite moments mm-hmm. in the interview was when she talked about the difficult circumstances the Greenlanders found themselves in and how archaeologists found the husks of cold temperature insects in the warmest spots of the Viking houses. Uh, conditions are really brutal there near the end. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm glad you said near the end. This article addresses the traditional narrative for how the settlement was eventually abandoned. Uh, we usually talk about how Greenland was a little more hospitable when Eric the Red settled there in uh, the late 10th century. Now, this was during the, traditionally, we call it the medieval warm period, mm. when Northern Europe was enjoying a long period of unusually warm weather. Right. And people argue that the same period helped make the settlement of Iceland much easier. And then when the Little Ice Age started in the 14th century, things got a little more difficult. Now, this is probably when things got to be almost unbearable for the Greenlanders, which explains, or at least helps to explain, the inevitable failure of the settlement. And it's a pretty canonical explanation for what happened in Greenland to drive the Norse away. Well, we don't have any records explaining what did happen. So the standard theory is that the climate became so harsh that the Norsemen were essentially forced out of Greenland altogether by the cold, or that the last of them just sort of died there, abandoned by everyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, the theory is a bit grim, but it works pretty nicely. It seems to fit the facts. It does. That is, un- until a group of geologists go out and debunk the whole theory. Really? Yes. Uh, so you know, I'm going to post this article uh, with the episode if you're interested in reading it. But in short, they did a study of the intermediate and distal moraines in Greenland and in Baffin Island. Uh, and before I continue, I have to check with you. Uh, do you know what a moraine is, John? Yay, I'm talking to one now. Wait, no, no, no. Get it? It's a... <laughs> You're a moraine. <laughs> Very clever wordplay, Dr. Stexton. Very clever indeed. No, I, I know what a moraine is. It's a post-glacial accumulation of rock. That's right. It's uh, it's all the stuff a glacier leaves behind after it starts to recede. And so they, they looked at these things and determined that the moraines must have been deposited in the area sometime before 1130 CE. And that's a really significant finding because it means that the temperatures associated with the medieval warm period in Iceland and Norway and England never really affected Greenland. It's a, it's a very spotty kind of warming period. Mm. Um, it, it was actually always cold during the Viking settlement of the region. Wow. I know. It basically forces us to reconsider why and how the Vikings settled in the area. 
Well, it just really underlines just how bloody-minded Eric the Red was. Did they say anything about the collapse of the Greenland settlement? Do they give any potential reasons on that end? You know, my dog is snoring in the in the background. So if you <laughs> if, if anyone you hear hears that, a dog snore in the background, that's just uh, that's just Andy's dog. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but it's certainly I not me read... being bored by him. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read for you the most important part of the conclusion for uh, for people like us. It says uh, the summertime climate records presented here point to regionally cool summers coinciding with Norse occupation which in turn suggests that non-climatic factors may have played an important role in driving the Norse abandonment of the region. Devaluation of walrus tusks, the related Norse isolation via stoppage of regular ship traffic from Norway and Iceland, and increasing hostilities with local Inuit were all possible factors that helped terminate the Norse presence in the western North Atlantic region. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we have to change my lecture notes for the Vinland sagas. I think so. Uh, but this is pretty good stuff. I mean, it helps to, you know, if you introduce this article or this at least this idea to your students, mm-hmm. um, it helps to bring the saga to life in some interesting ways. So, uh, like I said, I'll post the link to the article with the episode. It's called Glacier Maxima in Baffin Bay during the Medieval Warm Period Coeval with Norse Settlement. That is a sexy, sexy title. It's very academic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the article's by uh, Nicholas E. Young, Avril D. Schweinsberg. Jason P. Briner and Jörg M. Schaefer. Well done, you crazy geologist, you. <laughs> now, I've got a lot of uh, questions left over about the significance of this study for our understanding of the Vinland sagas, uh, especially the stuff about weather in Vinland. But uh, there's no time for that. We've got Ericsson's to judge. Well, yeah, and Eric's daughters. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, I think we're going to be judging Freydis, Eric's daughter, quite a bit today. Incidentally, uh, speaking of the Ericsons, I know we didn't really spend a ton of time on Freydis' brother, Leif, during our summary episode. Wait, now. I thought you wanted to keep this moving along. And -hmm. now you want to pause to talk about Leif Erikson, huh? Well, I think we can make time for it. We're not going to be spending a lot of time on him in this episode because I already selected him as a Thingman when we did Eric's saga. Mm -hmm. But he's almost certainly the best and most famous man in this saga. Wait, hold on, hold on. I'm not sure he's the best man in the saga, but... He, he, I'll grant you, he's the most famous. Well, I was kind of conflating those two things. But <laughs> think about this. Of all the Vikings, who has more statues to him outside of Scandinavia than Leif? I've personally seen statues to him in Reykjavik. In, Which is in Scandinavia. Uh, no, I, I know that. <laughs> I'm talking about okay. the ones I've seen personally. Uh, the, in Lansa Meadow, in Milwaukee, in Boston. And there are others in um, Minnesota, Virginia, Chicago. I think there's even a bust of Leif in Los Angeles. Wow. Well, he gets around. But did, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Leif isn't the only one with statues in his honor. There's a statue of uh, Thorfinn Karlsefni in Philadelphia. Well, that's one. Uh, <laughs> and, I fi- and I find that one hard to believe. Look, it's there. I've seen it. And, and as you know, there are cool saga-related statues all over our country. All over Not the world, Leif. really. And I was thinking, actually, it would be fun to start a page on our blog for saga-related monuments and statues. Ah, so that's what this is all about. Well, there's always it. a method to my madness. Uh, anyone who wants to can send a picture of themselves standing with a statue of Leaf or anything commemorating someone or something significant in the sagas, really, and we can put it up on the site. Uh, I'll get us started. My contribution will be uh, one of the few pictures from my trip to Lansa Meadows that survived was a shot of Leaf and me standing proud on the Newfoundland shore. Hmm. Let's see if we can't get a complete collection of Saga Thing listeners standing with ridiculous saga-related statues from around the world. I, I kind of like this idea, uh, although listening to you, I think we both know that I'm the one that's going to end up having to do all the work for this. Probably. Um, but but where should people send their pictures? Well, I think calling them to our attention on social media should work fairly well. Uh, mm-hmm. That's uh, Saga Thing Pod on Twitter and Saga Thing Podcast on Facebook. 
You can also send it to our email, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. All right. So we'll get that up and running. Yes, we'll uh, but- do that. Now, you, you did mention a statue in Boston, which is near where you live. Uh, mm-hmm. We didn't get into this during the main episode, but there is a whole story out there about the search for Vinland in New England. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we probably should cover that at least briefly. Um, it's going to take that much longer for us to get to the judgments if we talk about it. I know, but it's interesting stuff and worth sharing, especially since you live there. And Lord knows we'll never put together a saga brief on the subject. So <laughs> Fair enough. No uh, time like so the present. In the, in the 21st century, we have the benefit of the Ingstad's work. And we're pretty confident in the location of Leif's Vinland settlement, or at least one of the places where he established camp in Lonsa Meadow. But that hasn't always been the case. Right? Loretta Decker alluded to this during our conversation in the saga brief. The claim that the Greenlanders were filling their ships with grapes and grapevines in addition to lumber led most people who searched for the settlement site to look much further south than places like Lonsa Meadow. Mm-hmm. And various sites ranging from New Brunswick all the way down to the northeastern United States were proposed as likely sites. Yeah, and you know, uh, I've looked into this. There are even mm-hmm. some scholars who've tried to argue that the Vin in Vinland might be an oblique reference to cranberries, which oh, yeah, uh, yeah. grow pretty abundantly on the New England coast. Yeah, I can testify to that. Um, I live in mm-hmm. southeastern Massachusetts, and most of my drive to work is past cranberry bogs. It comes with some strange side effects. Such as? You want to maybe elaborate on that? Um, <laughs> well, for one thing, uh, bird crap in the autumn around here is kind of purple. There you go. Now, that's the sort of delightful detail that our <laughs> listeners come to us for. Uh, that's probably not the point you were going to make, I suspect. No, not even a little. It was really far away from that. But uh, my point was <laughs> that the statue in Boston was commissioned by someone who believed that the Vinland settlement was much farther south than we now think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can probably guess from the statue's location, the argument was that it was somewhere around Massachusetts Bay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's Eben Horsford's theory. <laughs> I I seriously don't know that much about this, John, but uh, I'm not shocked that you pulled that name out of the air. You have a, a knack for names. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd love to take credit for that, but I looked it up before we started recording. I, I'm uh, not claiming that I knew that one off the top of my head. So, uh, Horsford was a bit of an eccentric of the of the sort, frankly, that the 19th century seems to have specialized in. Uh, he's got quite a few accomplishments to his credit. For one thing, he created the modern recipe for baking powder. Now, there is a useless piece of information See? for everyone. Uh, but when he wasn't remodeling baking powder, Horsford was obsessed with the idea that the Greenlanders had made their way down to what would later be the Boston area. He wrote a lot of books on the subject. He commissioned mm-hmm. the statue of Leif Erikson uh, for Boston. He identified Waltham, Massachusetts as the location of the legendary settlement of Norumbega, which we haven't gotten to in this podcast yet, but we really should. And he even paid to have a memorial stone placed near the Charles River – at the spot where he thought Leif's house would have been. You know, that's a lot of energy spent on this. Does he have any evidence that uh, um, supports it? Does believing really hard count as evidence? No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Much to my student's chagrin. Then he didn't have any. I see. Yeah, well, there, there's been a fair amount of that kind of thing over the years. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Horsford isn't even the only one to formulate an argument for Massachusetts as a site for the Vinland expeditions. Now, did you want to talk about Dighton Rock as well? Yeah, but only briefly. Well, I, you know, I think everyone who listens to this has uh, already learned that your definition of briefly isn't the same as most people's, but I'm going <laughs> to – you go ahead. No, this really is brief because there's not much to it. Uh, there's this large sandstone boulder in southeastern Massachusetts called Dighton Rock. 
Mm-hmm. The rock has a series of faded petroglyphs carved into it that look like they might be letters from various alphabets, or, as I say, pictographs of some kind. Now, I believe you mentioned being brief, and this is a very long beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so one of the several theories about the carvings is that they were made in the 11th century by Thorfinn Karlsefni or one of his men. Oh. See, now you're interested. Hmm. The argument was made by a Danish man, Karl Christian Raffen, in the 1830s. A Danish man, you say, so he was mm-hmm. completely unbiased, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and to to add more to it, Robin never actually saw the rock himself. He never traveled to America. His analysis was based on hand-drawn reproductions of the carvings. <laughs> now, that seems like a fairly sketchy basis for an argument. Uh, Get it? Because it's a sketch. That's terrible. Pretty rocky ground to tread, don't you think? Stop it. Just <laughs> Rocky just, ground? Just stop. It's a rock. It's, it's worse when you explain it. Uh, you don't get to <laughs> complain about my puns ever again. Anyway, uh, Rothen argued that the rock has a combination of pictographs and alphabetic characters that provide details of the Greenlander's voyage, including Thorfinn Karlsefni's name. And you've seen this rock, right? Yeah. It's, it's only about half an hour from my house. And what did you think? Any conclusions? Uh, I'm hardly qualified to judge. Uh, I personally find the argument less than convincing. Even though I'd love for it to be true. I mean, it'd be, you know, a boon for me to have a real Viking site half an hour from my house. Yeah. Uh, but even granting the Karlsefni ship made it this far south, which is granting a lot. I'm not sure there aren't other more plausible explanations for those carvings. But as I say, I'd love for someone to prove me wrong. And since Greenlander's saga is about a series of conflicts between the Norse and the Skraelings, we've technically got two possible groups that could work out for us as the originators of the, of the rock. Cool. Well, I, I think you should um, go and get a picture of yourself with Dighton Rock for the website. Don't be snide. I was serious about that part. No. People should send us pictures. I wasn't being snide. I was agreeing with you. I actually want a picture of you with the rock, and so does everyone else. <laughs> I'll see what I can do, I, assuming they'll allow me to do it. Well, you know, if anyone can sweet talk that security guard, it's you, John. That's why they t- tell me I have a silver tongue. Is it now? <laughs> All right. Are we, uh, are we ready to judge this saga now? Hang on. Uh, before we get started, oh. I just need to ask one quick question about this episode. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, go ahead. We ha- we're clearly not in a rush to move along, so go ask your question. Okay. My question is, why does this episode exist? <laughs> so now we're going to do an existentialist exploration of a podcast episode? No, 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 no. I mean, why do we even have a separate episode for judgments on this one? Greenlander's Saga is only 13 pages long in the Complete Sagas edition. It comes mm-hmm. in at far less than one Ravenkill, and we covered that saga complete with judgments in a single episode. It's even shorter than its companion saga, Eric the Red, and we covered that one in a single episode too. And so that means we're doing the second version of the same story, and we're taking longer. So what happened? Well, I think you know what happened. Both of those episodes were recorded way back when we were still figuring this whole thing out. You know, we didn't know whether anyone would put up with us blathering on for a couple of hours about a single saga, and... It, you know, it turns out people kind of like it. Well, that, that's true, I guess. Uh, I do sometimes wish, though, that we could go back and redo a couple of those early episodes. What? I think we left a lot on the table with Ravenkel and maybe Bandamana. Bandamana saga. It's fun to say. But uh, we, we, we're barely over a third of the way through the Icelander sagas, and, and you want to already start doing do-overs? Come on now. <laughs> no, no, not really. It's just an idle thought I have occasionally. Oh, 
Well, so what other idle thoughts do you have about this Judgment episode? We've got to get on track. Uh, probably the same one you do. That we're going to be hard-pressed to justify debating most of these categories. That's true. This saga author is hyper-focused on a narrative of Vinland's discovery and attempted settlement uh, to, the, to the degree that he almost seems to lack some of the narrative instincts the other saga writers have. That's exactly right. Uh, if we had categories for a most significant historical moment or maybe best confluence of history and creative nonfiction in 15 pages or less... <laughs> Greenlander saga would be tops every time. There's just not a ton of obvious candidates for some of our usual categories. But who knows? Maybe we'll uncover some hidden gems. Maybe there's something unexpected lurking in the narrative subtext. Maybe we will find... Maybe, 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 maybe we should just get started. What do you say? Fine. Lay on, McDuff. Hold! Enough! Best Bloodshed. <laughs> In our best bloodshed category, we recount the saga's most brilliant deaths and maimings. Now, as we said a moment ago, there, there's not much to choose from in this saga, so I, I think this is going to go relatively quickly. Wink, wink. Well, I don't know if it's going to go that quickly. We've proven to be quite good at taking very little material and turning it into a rather lengthy discussion. I don't know why that wouldn't happen here. <laughs> now, there are definitely a few worthy candidates in this saga, even if there aren't an abundance of them. Now, I've only got two candidates on my list, and, and I know they're on your list as well. I mean, it's not a lengthy or impressive list to consider. You only have two candidates? Yeah. Did you have more? I did. Uh, since I know which ones you've chosen, I'll go first here with one that I don't think is on your list. Okay. I, I can't imagine what it's going to be, but feel free. I, I'm eager to find out what I missed. Okay. So let's start with the very first bit of bloodshed in the text. Okay. Now, to get there, you have to wait all the way till chapter four. Now, just to be clear, this is only an eight-chapter saga in most editions, so that's halfway through. It's quite a ways. Right. Uh, now, we talked about this one in the summary episode, is that momentous occasion where the two branches of mankind, who had mm. separated sometime in ancient history, meet again for the first time on the far side of the world. Yes, I still love that idea. After, like, 11,000 years apart, these groups finally get together, and then things go about as well as you'd expect when distant relatives meet up. Yeah. <laughs> Things are pretty awful. Uh, they don't go well at all. Yeah, it's it, they they just bypass pleasantries and all that kind of awkward standing around, and they get just mm -hmm. right. They just get right down to killing. Right. So this is the scene where Thorvald Eriksson and his crew come upon three hide-covered boats, each with three scralings under them. And the saga says that Thorvald divided his forces and managed to capture all of the men except one. And that lucky bastard managed to flee in his boat, but uh, the other men they don't fare too well with their shaggy-bearded cousins. No. Uh, the saga tells us that they killed the other eight men and then went back to surveying the land. It's so weird. I mean, are they just kill, then drop the bodies and casually head back to their ships to survey the land? Yeah, it's, it is kind of a weird moment. Yeah. And, and that's the problem with this candidate, in my opinion. I mean, you've basically reported everything that's in the saga. There's nothing best bloodshedy about this moment aside from the fact that eight men are killed, presumably execution style. Best bloodshedy? Yeah, it's a new word. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, but... We don't get any context or descriptions. There's nothing to it. We're just told they captured the Skraelings and then killed them and nothing more. Well, but it is interesting that they killed them. I know Loretta Decker mentioned in our saga brief that an archaeologist surmised that the Vikings may have been testing what they were seeing, right? experimenting to see whether the Skraelings were spirits or visions or flesh and blood creatures. Yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting observation at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I wholly buy it myself. It just seems to make the Vikings a lot less human, or at least that they lacked basic human common sense. You know, I much prefer the idea that they were simply doing the Viking thing and testing the metal of the men in a land that they hoped to settle. Ooh, that's a nice rhyme. 
I'm wondering if they're just testing the metal of their metal. Uh, right. But you're suggesting that they're sort of checking out the competition, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and, and while the Skraelings may appear weak in this scene, I think they seem to get the better of the Vikings in the long run, historically. Mm-hmm. Well, we also have to remember, this is the reunion of the two branches of mankind, right? It's incredibly significant at this moment for the history of mankind. And we have to assume, or at least we have to guess, that this is the start of a conflict that would eventually force the Norse to abandon their Vinland settlements. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's hard to say. And the saga really doesn't paint the Skraelings in the most sympathetic light. No, it doesn't really connect their actions in one section to another. I don't know about that. I mean, my first candidate for Best Bloodshed might suggest otherwise if we think about it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Go on. <laughs> All right. So this scene occurs in the middle of the battle between the Skraelings and Thorfinn Karlsefni's settlers. Um, it's, it's hard to tell where and when it happens exactly because the mm-hmm. action of the scene kind of stops. And then we zoom in on a small group of natives who've discovered an axe. See, now this is one of the most ridiculous scenes in the entire saga. It's also one of the best, but mostly because it's so strange. <laughs> so if you remember, the Skraelings were very interested in the Norsemen's weapons ever since they first encountered them. Yeah, way back when Thorvald Eriksson's men made short work of eight Skraelings with very little trouble. Like two pages ago, but uh, for right. the Skraelings, much longer. Um, but this scene shows us what happened when the Skraelings finally got their hands on a Viking axe. And the saga says, One of the natives then picked up an axe peered at it a while, and then aimed at one of his companions and struck him. The other fellow was killed outright. Well, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, nothing's better at killing outright than an axe to the head. It's a terribly effective method. Um, and, and no doubt it's pretty gruesome as well. I mean, it clearly disturbs the Skraelings. There's one Skraeling in particular who, uh, he's both tall and handsome, which is Saga shorthand for a leader of the group. This guy picks up the axe, examines it for a while, and then throws it as far out into the ocean as he can. After that, the Skraelings fled into the woods at top speed and and didn't bother Thorfinn's group ever again. Oh, well, let's be fair. I mean, they don't have much of a chance to. Thorfinn only makes it to the spring before he decides that he wants you to go home. <laughs> you know, I don't see the problem with that. He's got a ship full of goods to take home, and he's going to make a good profit. Why would he hang out? Sure. I mean, he did say that he wanted to settle permanently, so... It suggests that he's uh, had something change his mind. I uh, know. He said he's going to settle uh, people there, not that he's no, going to stay. Yeah, you know, okay. so, you know. Uh, now, I've said before that the Greenlanders show a lot more common sense in fleeing than later European settlers would. But let's not pretend that he's not bothered by the Skraelings. Well, I mean, if he is, I'd hardly blame him. And he's got that cute little snorry to uh, worry about now. He's Absolutely just being he a responsible father. Okay. So what do you make of this scene? You mentioned at the start that it might paint the Skraelings in a more sympathetic light. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I, I guess I wonder what the scene says about the Norsemen more than the Skraelings. If we go back to your candidate, uh, we see the Vikings arriving in the New World and killing eight natives indiscriminately. You know, on its own, I don't think we can read much into that scene, especially because it's so quick and offers no commentary. But but then this scene comes along and the actions of the Skraelings, I think, I think they suggest something potentially significant about this author's feelings. Really? So there's an agenda at work here? Maybe. Again, like I said, I'm not 100% confident in this theory. It's more of a gut feeling than anything, but uh, but we need to do our other candidates before the theory is going to make any sense. So why don't All you right. handle the Freitas episode? Because that's a big one for helping us understand what might be going on here. Okay. I don't think we have to dwell too long on this scene because it's probably the most memorable event in the saga. It's where Freitas convinces her husband Thorvard that Helgi and Finbogi, the Icelandic traders that accompanied them to Vinland, had beaten her after she asked them to sell her their ship. 
Right, and it's a larger ship, and she wants it to bring more wood back to Greenland. But the trouble here is that when she asked Helga and Finbogi, they readily agreed to give her the boat for free, which is Mm -hmm. quite different from what she tells her husband. Right, they probably just said to get rid of her. Yeah. She hadn't been nice to them or their companions since they left Greenland. So, Freydis browbeats her husband into taking action. Thorvard gathers his men and rushes over to Helgi and Finbogi's longhouse. They storm the building while everyone is asleep, tie them up, and then lead them outside. Then Freydis has them all killed. It's worth noting here that Thorvard is simply doing Freydis' bidding. I mean, I don't think that Thorvard necessarily intended to kill anyone, or at least not everyone. That's interesting. I mean, you're right. Freydis is the one who commands the murder of the 30 men. And it is murder, because she then attempts to hide the deed by threatening everyone to keep them from talking about it back in Scandinavia. Exactly. And she doesn't just have the 30 men killed. There's more. No. Uh, there are five women in Helgi and Finbogi's group. Mm-hmm. And when her men including her husband Thorvard, refused to kill the women. She simply says, hand me an axe, and then dispatches the women herself. Yeah, she's an awful woman. Terrible. Yeah, now she deserves everything that's coming to her, which... It includes much. all the awards that we're about to pass out. Yeah, <laughs> sadly, yes. She's a strong candidate in most categories this time around. And I think I'll just mention really quick that we do have another example that I you know, I forgot about. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a torture. There's torture in the saga. Yes, there um, is. So, so that could be another candidate, but but not a serious one. That's right. I mean, we, we mentioned way back in our Robinkill episode that torture is very rare in the sagas, but we do have a reference to torture in this saga. Yeah, even though Freydis told everyone to keep their mouths shut about the slaughter in Vinland, the saga tells us that uh, not everyone was so closed-mouthed that they could keep silent about these misdeeds or wickedness, and eventually word got out. Mm. And and then when word reaches Leif Erikson, well, he's rather shocked. Well, it doesn't say he's shocked. No, but you know, I assume he'd have to be. Remember, this saga tells us that Leif is a man of moderation in all things. You put him Well, that's right. Uh, and Freydis is hardly a picture of moderation, and that's why I'm not sure he's shocked. He hmm. knows his father and his sister, and he knows ah. that she is her father's daughter. That's right, yeah. Can, can you imagine growing up with her? Exactly. I mean, can you imagine that household? I mean, Leif may be a decent man, and his brothers seem okay, but his sister is very much their father's daughter. I don't think he was shocked. There's probably a lot of pulling the wings off of butterflies and torturing cats <laughs> in her childhood. Anyway, so uh, so Leif takes three of Freydis' men from the voyage to the New World and forces them under torture to tell the truth about what happened, and they, their accounts are all the same. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I read this part, I always wonder why he didn't just ask these guys, you know? <laughs> Presumably, they know the rumors are circling around. I mean, what do they have to lose? Just tell. Um, do you remember what Freydis did to those 35 people in Vinland? <laughs> oh, that's right. I imagine that leaves some pretty deep psychological scars. At the very <laughs> least, they're scared to death of Freydis if she finds out that they's narked. Okay, so so anyway, we, we do have the torture in this thing. Uh, unfortunately, right. it doesn't show us what kind of torture was used, but uh, I'd like to imagine it was pretty impressive. Yet, unfortunately, is a strange word choice there. Uh, somehow, I doubt it was very impressive. Remember, Leaf's a man of moderation. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it involved maybe a few light slaps, <laughs> maybe pouring a glass of water over their heads. <laughs> <laughs> pouring water over their heads. And it's, it's just below room temperature, so maybe it's a little, just a little chilly for them. Right. Perhaps waiting until they're almost asleep and then asking them <laughs> if they're comfortable. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> what's what, 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 what's up? Oh, nothing, gentlemen. Don't mind me. What were you saying about Freydis as you dozed off there? <laughs> what, what? What? Freydis? Nothing. Nothing. Did I say something about Freydis? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Maybe. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. So so now uh, we, we've hit the only four examples of bloodshed in the entire saga. And as I well, said before, they're not terribly impressive. Well, not the only four. Don't forget Thorvald, Thorvald being hit with an arrow. 
Nah. He made the quarter court with that Narek saga. Sure, but in that version, he was shot by a uniped and offered a funny quip mm-hmm. as he died. And his wound and death are just an afterthought in this saga. Hardly worth counting. Okay, but I still think the ones we've highlighted are impressive, even if they're not as grand as you might like. All right, that's fine. Now, here's my theory. Oh, right. I almost forgot you had something to say about all this. uh, You're not not even enthusiastic about this. I'm sorry. I almost forgot. You had something to say about all this. There you go. I guess that's better. (laughs) So, So here's the thing. If we look at the bloodshed in sequence, there's possibly something worth paying attention to. The first one, the slaying of the eight Skraelings, on its own doesn't mean much, but then we get the Skraeling with the axe. And mm-hmm. the saga makes a big deal about the potential value of the European weapons to the Skraelings. They're interested in iron weapons from the very beginning, but when they finally get their hands on one, what happens? The weapon kills instantly, and in a pretty gruesome fashion. It's almost as if the weapon is too powerful, and the tall, handsome leader of the Skraeling seems to reject that power when he throws the axe as far as he can into the sea. And then he avoids the Norsemen for the remainder of their stay. And, and I don't think we see the Norse and the Skraelings interact again after this. Yeah, that's right, actually. The Skraelings are out of the saga after the axe scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unusually, Freydis's group never seems to encounter them at all. Uh, in this saga, not Neric the Red saga, in mm-hmm. this saga, whatever happened in the battle with Thorfinn and Karlsefni, the Skraelings clearly don't want anything to do with the Vikings again. Right, and the the level of violence has increased from what could be considered a small skirmish between two small groups to then a, a full-scale battle when when the Vikings are so outnumbered by Skraelings that Thorfinn Karlsefni has to strategize against an army of natives by using a bull to lead the charge. I don't know about strategizing now, this hide behind a cow. This is violence on a massive scale either way, and, and the tall, handsome chief of the Skraelings is clearly disturbed by it all. Right, and, and the next example of violence would be Freydis. Exactly, and we're no longer dealing with foreigners now. This is Mm -hmm. violence within the kin group. Freydis is attacking her own people, and without provocation. So her example is just petty, immoral, and psychopathic violence. And and then we've got the torture. Okay, but I'm not sure that I want to include that one as part of the escalation of violence we see in the saga, especially since it is introduced as a corrective measure for the wickedness of Freydis. I'm not sure it is corrective. It wasn't Freydis getting tortured. But at least it is represented as a part of a system of justice at work. So if you accept that and and justice Mm -hmm. systems working typically indicate order, the fact that Leaf is administering this justice is a mark in his favor. So good for your Thingman. I actually like him more in this saga because of this moment more than anything he does in Eric's saga, which is basically nothing. Well, (laughs) tell that to the many rescued from the shipwreck. Mm. And what about the countless souls he saved by converting them to Christianity? Okay, John. Okay. Now, all I'm trying to say is that the torture is part of a working justice system, and that justice imposes order on a chaotic system that is represented by the violence we encounter in the New World. So, the Skraling Chieftain's rejection of Viking weapons is then the linchpin to this argument, because it serves or seems to serve as a condemnation of pre-Christian European ways of life. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I've never read it that way. I've always read it as if the author is treating the Skralings as simple savages, who are afraid of bulls and can't handle European weapons. Hmm. It's, and I feel like there's a very, uh, there's a very kind of one-dimensional drawing of the, uh, sketching of the, uh, uh, Skraelings in this saga. I mean, don't you think the author would make a bigger deal of Christianity if his point were to, were to, uh, compare the savage with the Christian? Yeah, you know, that's the part that bothers me. There, there's not much in here about Christianity or, or any commentary on behavior, but sagas also don't tend to comment on things directly all the time. But doesn't this one though? I mean, it's kind of an exception. It definitely passes judgment on Freydis. That's true. Uh, and she's called a wicked woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have several wicked occasions where supernatural woman. events happen 
where the Viking, when the Vikings have treated the Skraelings cruelly, right? Like Thorvald's group falling asleep after right. the death of the eight Skraelings. I feel like there's quite a bit of judge, a surprising amount of judgment in this saga. Okay, the, the, well, that supports what I'm saying. Um, the, the author's judging the characters and their behavior. No, I, I think I like the general point. Uh, this at least helps to make some sense of the Skraeling axe scene, which otherwise just bothers me. Mm-hmm. And then the chief decision to throw the axe into the ocean. Yeah, I like that he seems to consider it a while, as if he's looking into the future. Like you, you zoom in on his eye and see uh, mm-hmm. the future of bloodshed. Uh, and then mm-hmm. he wisely turns away from the kind of violence and chaos the axe promises. Um, the kind of violence and chaos tearing Europe apart. But... Uh, but we've got a job to do here, and we shouldn't dwell over this too long. This is still the best bloodshed section, and we got to select a winner. Who's it going to be? I don't think there's any doubt here. No, no. <laughs> you know, as much as I like the uh, Skraling axe scene for its oddness, uh, there's no way to compete with the extreme accomplishments of someone like Freitas Eriksdotter. I agree. Let's give her that award and 40 wax and move on. Sounds good, but, I, you know, I'm going to let you deliver the award, and I'm going to keep my distance over here. <laughs> Body, Body count. count. All right. I think this is Andy's favorite category. This is the uh, category where we count up how many people die by unnatural means in this saga. Why would it be my favorite category? No. Well, you know, you're a violent man. <laughs> uh, sure. Now, I think uh, we have one of our rare sagas where we actually came to agreement on the number of the dead. Yes. Uh, more or less. More like, yeah, there's a little bit of discussion, uh, but uh, I think the numbers are fairly straightforward mm-hmm. in this saga in terms of countable deaths. And so for what is a very short saga, we said earlier that it's uh, you know 0.71 Robin kills, mm-hmm. uh, the shortest saga that we've read and probably the shortest saga we will read, uh, or at least close to it, and yet a body count of 50. Yeah. Very respectable. Now, of course- I think uh, you know, bodies per page that may set a record. It does, but we owe a lot of that to uh, to Freitas, who takes out 35 all by herself. Absolutely. And who has already received her reward. That's right. That's right. And uh, you got Thorvald killing uh, uh, eight Skraelings on his own. So the children of Eric the Red really uh, carry on his legacy in the New World, don't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I think the only issue we had is that every winter in this saga – a disease and famine sweep the Greenland settlement. Mm-hmm. And so we see a couple of times where we're told that many die. Right? So we have a couple of crews that end up stuck there for the winter and we're told that most of the crew dies. But in yeah. both situations, we're not told how many of the crew die. That's uh, right. So we'll be told that Thorer the Norwegian dies and most of his crew. We can only count Thorer in that case. And right? We know there are the deaths. We just don't know how many. Yeah, there are 15 crewmen on that ship that are uh, saved by Leaf the Lucky. And according to the saga, most of them die. So, you know, is that, I would assume that's at least nine. Could be 12. <laughs> Could be. To completely pull a number out of, out of your hat. Exactly. And um, that's, that's a, uh, that's why we don't count them, which sometimes I think is right. unfair, but, uh, <laughs> right. That's the rule we But made. if you're counting along at home and you want to add another, a uh, couple of dozen men for the two sure. crews that die in Greenland, uh, you feel free to do that, but the official count That's will right. be 50. All right. Let's move on. Nicknames. So now we're on to my actual favorite category, which is nicknames. <laughs> this is the time where we get to uh-huh. hear um, all the kind of uh, little nuances of nicknames, a little bit of backstory on people. And uh, we we get to learn about some connections between the saga that we're reading and uh, many of the other sagas. and stories that come out of the middle ages so uh without further ado i i leave it over to john oh 
Oh, it's it's actually cruel of you to give me that introduction this time out. Usually you make fun of me for the nickname section. This time you heap plaudits upon me when you know <laughs> as well as I do there isn't a decent nickname anywhere in this saga. Oh, what about Thorstein the Black? Uh, okay. So the, the problem is we have a unique <laughs> problem with nicknames this time out. We won't run into this again. First of all, there just aren't that many nicknames. The saga really sticks pretty closely to the children of Eric the Red, and out of the four of them, only Leaf gains a nickname that we're told of. But a second problem is that most of the names that are mentioned in this saga, we already covered in our Eric Saga episode. Yes. So good names like Eolf the Beshitten, Hraven the Dueler, Eric the Red, Leaf the Lucky, and of course, the incomparable Thorbjorg Shipbreast were already given their due. Ah, Thorbjorg. Mm-hmm. Now, Thorbjorg won the prize last time by, we'll just say by a nose. So she's out of the running. Well, you know, we could put her in again and then and then maybe pin another medal to her other breast. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no. You can't win twice. I think we can make an exception in her case. Uh, but we want to point out that Eric the Red, Leaf the Lucky, Eolf the Beshitten, and Raven the Dueler are technically still viable as candidates. Mm. Uh, but... I've had a really, I mean, I've had a really dredge the bottom of the pool to find their competition. Uh, so here's what I've got. Thorstein the Black. <laughs> I knew it. Well, sure. Uh, he's a Greenland plague victim. Other than that, there isn't much to say about him. His, his name, uh, like many of the names that are attached to colors in the sagas, usually refer to their hair. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's, he's got black hair. Um, he's a pretty common nickname. Thorstein the Black is a pretty common nickname in the sagas, but there isn't a whole lot to say about it. And yet you're still talking about it. Thor the Norwegian, he said, moving on. <laughs> okay. Uh, this isn't even a real nickname. Uh, and in most episodes, we'd skip it. Uh, because they, he's just called, he just says he's a Norwegian. He doesn't really get called right. a nickname. But we're really scraping the barrel this time out. So I'm willing to put it into contention. Okay. Uh, I do think it's worth mentioning just because Thor is such a Norwegian in this saga. He shows up, has one scene, and then dies to move the plot forward. He's the quintessential Norwegian companion. He doesn't even get killed in a battle. He's one of the victims of one of the rounds of disease in Greenland. But, hey, if it weren't for Thorir, Gudrid and Thorfinn would have to have met some other way. Uh, Thorir is convenient for the author, and that's... Well, it's a pretty lousy tombstone, actually. Uh, (laughs) Moving on. Okay. Thord Horsehead. There you go. Hesthofta. Now we're on to something. Yeah. We mentioned Thord last time, but we didn't actually address his nickname. We just listed him. Uh, there are actually a few figures in the sagas with horse names, but Horsehead is unique to this guy. Uh, there are a couple of ways to interpret what the name means. Now, it, it might conceivably refer to hair worn particularly long in the back, since horse manes were frequently a source of names for horses. Provenkill's right? horse, Freyfaxi, for example, is a synecdoche with fax or mane meaning horse. I'd love to be able to say that Horsehead means that Thord has a famous mullet, but there's just not enough to go on here. Uh, it's possible he's just got a long face or big teeth. Oh, my goodness. Uh, in the end, all we know is that something about him puts people in mind of a horse. Okay. Could be worse. At least he's reminding them of the front of a horse. <laughs> his son, Thorfinn Karlsefni. Yes. Now, we did address his name in Eric's saga. Karlsefni means the makings of a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we said last time when we talked about him, Karlsefni isn't actually all that impressive from a traditional saga perspective. Right? He's a shipping magnate, not a Viking or a berserk. And his response to danger is to sell milk products and s- charge into battle behind a cow. 
<laughs> There's nothing wrong with him. But if he's the makings of a man, we're clearly dealing with a shifting definition of manly virtue in the sagas. You're ridiculous. And I don't think I don't know what you're doing there. Ulf Oxenthorison. I know exactly what you're up well, to. Well, it's the there. same thing we said about him last time. That's what you said Ulf about him last time. Okay. Well, if you would take up the task of uh, researching a few nicknames, I wouldn't have to say all the things. <laughs> Ulf Oxenthorison, he said again. Look, all I'm saying here is that is that you are editorializing. <laughs> See, now, what what I respect about you is your, your ability to find facts and make connections. I don't, what I don't appreciate here is your, uh, your politicking about, uh, uh, I, I don't feel politicking at all. You are jumping the gun, sir. This is nobody's <laughs> thing man yet. Not yet. Now, if I may get on to Ulf. Yes. Um, uh, He's only mentioned in, in one version of the saga, because as we mentioned, this saga is cobbled together from a few different sources. Uh, Ulf is actually the grandfather of Eric the Red, so Oxenthor is Eric's great-grandfather. Uh, now, usually in the sagas, Ox nicknames carry much the same connotations as they do in modern stories. Right? Men called Ox are big and strong. So somewhere in the background of Eric's family is this kind of big, strong, the kind of people who get called half-troll in other sagas. Finally, we have Ulf Crow or Ulf Krako. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another figure who's mentioned only in passing and only in certain versions. He's also not especially interesting. Although well, I is... mean, that's never stopped you from uh, mentioning someone before. Well, exactly, because I will find the nugget of gold. And you uh, usually do. What's the? I, I'm, I'm assuming you've not only found gold here, but diamonds. Continue. No, no. <laughs> that's small nugget of fool's gold, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> what? What? Distinguishes Ulf is that he's one of the figures mentioned in both Olaf Tryggvason's saga and in the Landnama book or the settlement book of Iceland. Uh, so he's a very, he's a kind of historically a very, a very easily sort of, uh, uh, located figure. Wow. Uh, but it's worth a mention that one of Ulf's many grandsons is Thorarin Corny, who became famous as the greatest shape-shifting witch warrior of his day. So there's that. Are you sure he wasn't the first Icelandic comedian? <laughs> His la- his his nickname means grain. <laughs> Presumably, he was a farmer. Oh my god! Um, all right, that wasn't terribly impressive. So those are um, our options. It is a it it is a slim picking this time around. Before we uh, we jump into uh, talking about the the obvious two maybe three candidates for that one, um, I wanted to ask you if you know anything about the the word scrailing. Um, as I was reading through you know these sagas. The word scrailing pops up. Um, it's obviously the word that they use to describe the Native Americans, the indigenous populations. I think it's also used for the Inuits mm-hmm. in uh, in Greenland. Do you know anything about that word? I know it comes from uh, a, a Icelandic, uh, rather a Scandinavian word, skrál, uh, which means like thin or scrawny. Yeah. But there's also an argument that it might be derived from another word that means like to yell or to shout. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's not – it's not terribly clear even where it comes from, let alone what it's meant to mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether they're meant to be described as shouting, yelling warriors. Remember in uh, Eric's saga, they have a strange weapon that lets out a kind of wailing, ululating sound yeah, that's during right. battle. And that scares everybody off. So whether the, the word refers to something like that or whether it's referring to their small stature compared to the Scandinavians uh, and so thin or scrawny, right. it's not known. Interesting. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a tough one. I I did look into it and I uh, you know found basically the same kind of thing. I thought maybe you could provide mm-hmm. us with more insight, but it's one of those mysteries lost in time. 
I'm afraid so. All right. So the candidates that we need to choose from, not many. Thorfinn Carl's Ethne, Thord Horsehead. That's about mm-hmm. – th- those are the two best, I think. Well, I, I feel like I'd, I need to um, – last time we considered and rejected Eolf the Beshitten. Um But I do <laughs> want to just point out that he's still out there waiting, sad and lonely, <laughs> now, unpicked is he, by anyone for the dance. Remind me, is he in the chapter the, – the initial chapter that's excluded from most of the uh, editions of this saga? In this version, yes. Yeah. See, that seems a little bit less fair to everyone out there who's going to be picking up this saga and they're not going to see Eolf right. the Beshitten. That's sad. So you want us to keep it just to somebody who appears in the actual saga proper? Yeah, I feel like that would be appropriate. As much as I love that guy's name, then, maybe we'll run into him again. Then we're definitely down to Thorfinn and Horsehead. Yeah. There's really nobody else. What do you think, John? I mean, there is Leaf the Lucky. Nope. Boring. <laughs> Just can't stand the idea of giving one of my thingmen the name. No, no, no. It's it's just that it's not terribly interesting, and uh, it's about mm-hmm. as fascinating as the names he gives to the lands he encounters. Well, I'm going to say this. I I think we can give it to Carl Stephanie just because you know the makings of a man is a pretty good nickname. It sure uh, is, and uh, I'm, I'm going to, and it implies a, a bit more about him than than you allow in your uh, no. I think derisive uh, in comments fact, last time. With with Eric Saga, we made a point of saying the shame about it is that he's not a very interesting character. That's because in Eric Saga, he that, isn't as interesting a character. The the nickname is the most interesting thing about him. Yeah, I would agree. But I think in this saga, he's far more interesting. But more about that later. <laughs> you Now who's politicking? Now who's editorializing? <laughs> All right. All right, Carl Stephanie, it is. Notable, Notable witticisms. witticisms. All right, so in this category, we normally look at the clever sayings, the witty one-liners, and the bits of uh, narrative bon mot that we uh, we enjoy in the saga. Um, I like that you say uh, normally. Yeah, this this saga presents a bit of a problem in that regard, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not really uh, a whole lot of stuff to choose from here. In fact, I think that for the first time ever, I'm going to bow out and say I couldn't find a single <laughs> notable witticism. In all 13 oh pages God. or whatever of this saga. There's just nothing here. Andy has nothing to say. Somebody alert the media. <laughs> so I think we don't so much have a contest as a nominee. Um, I'm going to say so that... found you know, one. Fre- I mean, well, kind of. I mean, Freitas, Freitas uh, uh, responding to her men's refusal to kill the five women with, hand me an axe. is about as close as we get to a witty line. How is it witty? That's what I don't. Well, understand. it's sort of black. It's sort of you know. It's sort of black humor. It's a. Uh, it's it's, you know, it's witty in the same way that, like catchphrases from horror movies become witty. Uh, I see. So yeah, it's that that uh, horrific moment in a movie that's just so awful and ridiculous you can't help but laugh. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It's already standing in front of a pile of corpses. Right. Literally a pile of dead. Uh, and yeah. her response to their hesitation is to take an axe. And hack these five women to pieces in front of them. Right. <laughs> so, did you have anything else, or is that just it? Oh no! I mean, the the my my best runner up is uh, Turkier babbling in German uh, after he gets drunk. Yeah. I'm choosing to assume that he's a, quite a witty drunk, and so whatever he said was very clever. We just don't know what it was because it was right. in German. <laughs> but yeah, no, we're down to that. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Um, I'm gonna abstain. If that's all right with you, I don't uh, feel that any of these deserve the award. So 
Um, I'm going to abstain. You may give whoever you want the award and take that shame with you to the grave. No, I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that you know in the tradition of um, is that you, Norman, and uh, uh, that, <laughs> that hand me an axe belongs in the pantheon <laughs> of horror film lines. Uh, so we'll give it to it for that. Oh, glory. And speaking of villains, it's time to outlaw someone from the saga. There aren't mm-hmm. that many people in the saga, and most of them don't do anything. <laughs> so <laughs> I think there's probably a pattern is beginning to form strong. here. Yeah. Hmm. Someone's sweeping all the rewards. Mm-hmm. Right. We do have one obvious outlaw figure, yes. But who? I think it comes down to one of the most horrific married couples we've ever seen. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Freydis, uh, Eric's daughter, right? very much her father's daughter. Uh, and then her husband, Thorvard, who is actually the one who leads the assault on the on the longhouse and uh, captures oh, the on. Icelandic brothers. I'm just making the point that it's not Freydis alone. Uh, but that in and of itself does not say anything good about him. But if we look at what uh, the saga says... They only bind the men that are in the hall and bring them outside. It's uh-huh. then that Freydis tells them. Freydis says, kill them. Absolutely. So it's not like they run in Absolutely. there to kill anybody or set the place on fire and do all that kind of stuff uh, just to, to oh. murder everyone. Right. They were planning on tying up all 30 of them and then, what, slapping their cheeks roughly? I think it's pretty clear that what's happening is that Thorvard doesn't really have a plan at all. Right. He, he only undertakes exactly. the raid to shut his wife up. Because she's been right. harassing him about how useless he is. He doesn't really know mm-hmm. what to do next. I think it's it's fairly obvious that once you've assaulted a group that is essentially the same size as your own, and you're this far away from home, you can't release them again. Right. Uh, but he doesn't really seem to have a clue as to what he's supposed to be doing with them. He just captures them to keep his wife happy. She obviously intends from the beginning to have them all killed. Exactly. And then she kills five women. Right, and that's so, I think that's the thing that puts her over the top, right, is that she, she hacks apart five presumably also tied up and helpless women. Well, I, I still don't understand her motivation. No, I don't think there is any realistic motivation. I mean, she's just a horrifying person, right, that it's – her plan yeah. is to have a large ship to bring back to uh, Greenland with her. And mm-hmm. it's irrelevant to her that she has to murder 35 people to get it. Right. The idea that she would just right. build a larger ship in the first place or build a larger ship in the New World is irrelevant. The simplest solution that presents itself is to murder 35 people and take their ship. And so that's the one she does. Yeah. Well, do you think – now that I'm thinking of kind of Freydis and, and I'm comparing her to uh, how she appears in Eric's saga where you know, she's beating her breast in that kind of Amazon warrior mm-hmm. woman fashion mm-hmm. um, and scaring the scraylings. She doesn't do anything really horrible in Eric's saga. And I, 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 no, not as at I all. go through the Greenlander saga, I keep thinking this saga does a lot to undercut Eric and Eric's legend. I would say while it does do a certain amount of undermining, it also um, centralizes them in a way that the Eric saga doesn't. Eric's saga, if you remember, most of the expeditions have nothing to do with the Ericsons. Uh, That's true. Thorfinn, Karl Sefni, and uh, Gudrid actually lead the main uh, expedition that takes up the bulk of the narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we're – and Eric in that one never actually spends any time in uh, Vinland. Uh, so That's it's right, – yeah. I feel like 
it's it's kind of a trade-off, right? That the the Ericsons are at the center of this saga, but they don't look good doing it. Yeah. Strange. And ultimately, Freitas Very is just strange. I mean, she sort of takes up the mantle of horrifying multiple murderer that is her father's mantle in Eric's saga. But Freitas, what is the what is the rationale for taking a character who seemed like a kind of uh, uh, an admirable warrior woman in Eric Saga and turning her into mm-hmm. one of the most dastardly villains we've encountered mm-hmm. in uh, the I Saga mean, of the Green you know, why, why specifically it should be Freitas, I'm not sure. But, I mean, it's worth noting that where Eric's, Eric the Red Saga uh, is very much interested in uh, Gudrid's story and in uh, the story of Thorbjörg the Prophetess. And remember, it begins... Uh, with uh, the story of of on the deep minded, uh, that it's a saga that's very much interested in the role of women uh, in in uh, the Greenland settlement in Vinland and in the conversion. This saga, right. I think, is far less interested in women um, and is maybe more uncomfortable with the idea of women in leadership roles. That's true. Even if you think of uh, Gudrith in this saga. She does occupy an important position, but it's really mm-hmm. only in terms of getting to Thorfinn and Karl's Efni. Um, she doesn't really play the same right. kind of role, and we don't see her kind of developed in the same way that we do in Eric's saga. So yeah, you're right. There's uh, far less interest in the female characters. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I feel like, you know, maybe Freitas is sort of, I, mean, I won't say, you know, suffering uh, poor press here, but oh, how could it get worse? Well, I, th- I think she's running afoul of a saga writer who isn't terribly interested in uh, glorifying the deeds of women. Yeah. All right. Well, either way, um, I assume... Either way, we, we, have to, we have to work with what we've got. And what we've got is a pretty horrific act by Freitas. Yeah. And so now that I've talked us into feeling bad about it, I think we're still going to have to help Laura. <laughs> exactly. So we just uh, send her on her way, but we won't look her in the eye as we do so. <laughs> That's right. I wouldn't dare. All right. Big man. All right, on to Thingman, and now we uh, now we see the genius of Andy's plan in deferring the coin toss uh, at the end of Gretter's saga. Oh, thank you. Uh, there were a lot of good choices in Gretter's saga. Uh, I I I give credit where it's due. You know, the lightning strikes, the sun shines on a dog's butt every once in a while. <laughs> uh, there were a lot of good choices in Gretter's saga. Um, obviously, the debate still rages as to uh, which one of us got the better selection. But mm-hmm. I think you knew. That coming into this saga, the pickings were going to be a mighty slim. Exactly. It would have been slim anyway. And then you've got the added problem that we've already been through this story once in Eric's saga. And so I've already taken yes. Leaf the Lucky. Where do you, by the way, do you even remember who you took? We've talked about it a million times. I, I think our listeners are tired of hearing us talk about Killer Stur and uh, how I stole him from this saga. I think what we're going to see this time out is that because, I mean, last time, and I'll freely admit, you know, I still think it was a, a notorious action on your part, but you know, it, it, it was a, Ugh. it was an indication of just how poor the pickings were in that saga. Now mm-hmm. we're faced with the same cast of characters having already Only outlawed worse. <laughs> Eric and Freitas and having already taken Leaf. And so yeah. you, I think recognized this, knew that there was only one person even remotely acceptable, or at least so you thought. Uh, and so uh, why don't you go on ahead? I, I can't imagine it's going to take you long to make your decision because there really is, I assume, 
one man on your list. Well, you just watch how long this takes me. <laughs> Go so right ahead. In this saga, we get we do get appearances by some names, you know, name the Ericsons. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think any of them accomplish anything worth noting. Leaf hangs out in Vinland for a short time and does an okay job. If you think about what uh, Leif Erikson is, he's more of a scout than anything. He's the one that kind of goes in and checks it out and then comes back and reports. So, Oh, how dare you? <laughs> so uh, Thorvald accomplishes next to nothing, having angered the natives. So I, you know, I'm not choosing him. Thorstein, well, he spends the whole summer floating around the North Sea only to arrive right back where he started. And then he gets sick and dies. So I'm not choosing him. And I'm not even going to address Freydis, who's already boarding the ship to start her exile. Mm-hmm. And I'm still averting my eyes. Not going to look at her. Right. So I, I don't know. Who who else do we have to choose from? I mean, there's Torker the German with his wrinkled forehead <laughs> and uh, his darting eyes. I think I'm going to pass on that. Um, hey, you need someone to supply your Thingman with drink. Oh, I'm sure we can figure it out. Honestly, if you think about it, picking a Thingman from this group is really, really tough. Yeah, it is. For whoever's picking second. Oh, and that's exactly no. why I deferred <laughs> in the Greater Saga Judgments, as you said. Um, I knew that Thorfinn Karlsefni was waiting for me in Greenlander Saga. I He caught my eye in Eric's Saga, and now the time has come to claim the fella. So what this I want to address just, now is, is your... Oh, please. Your commentary on uh, Thorfinn and his quality has been offensive to me since <laughs> we started this whole thing. <laughs> And I'd like to take the opportunity to address some of that now, if I may. Oh, Um, or I may. (laughs) It's too late now. You talked about him as if he was just a merchant or a shipping magnet and nothing more, and that he's not a terribly impressive individual. That Um, that is a mischaracterization of what I said, sir, and I object to it. Oh, is it? Yes. All right. Well, go ahead. What I said, and I will repeat exactly what I said, there's nothing wrong with him. But if he's the making of a man, we're clearly dealing with a shifting definition of manly virtue. Oh, I think we've established before when we are reading the sagas, we do see this shift away from the violent and the uh, um, the self-regulating figure into more of a community figure. I think we talked about this in Greta's saga. We talked about sure. some of the sagas. There's nothing wrong with Thorfinn Karlsefni. The problem is he exhibits – the manly virtues of Christian Iceland, and those are not the manly virtues for the most part of Saga Age Iceland. Okay, but you're making it sound like he's not uh, hes not capable, and he's not savvy, and he's not good with the sword, and none of those things are true. Uh, excuse I mean, me, this guy, you none of those things are not, not just... Are, none of those things are demonstrated <laughs> at any point in the saga. Thorfinn, his really? only battle takes place with him staring at the back end of a cow. Let me let me stop you there. Is this my Thingman time or is it yours? Absolutely it is. Hmm. I think it's my turn to talk. <laughs> Carry on. Spew your lies. <laughs> no, I've tried to construct a logical argument for this here. So uh, Thorfinn's not just a savvy businessman, John. He is a risk taker and he's got the notable distinction of being the first European colonist in the New World. That's pretty impressive. I mean, the few guys who came before him either arrived by accident or were simply coming to Vinland for economic reasons. Uh Thorfinn's a guy that loaded his ships with livestock, with women, and all the necessary supplies to make a new life in the new world. That's a very impressive resume line. Can you you remind us of how that worked out? I'm going through it, if you'll be patient. (laughs) (laughs) So, while he's in the new world, Thorfinn accomplishes a great deal and proves himself to be a worthy and capable leader, despite (laughs) your silly arguments. He establishes a working settlement. 
He trades peacefully with the natives for a time. I know you're going to critique that, but for a time. And then he wisely only offers consumables in exchange for furs and other goods. That's impressive uh, thinking there as far as I'm concerned. But I'm a simple man. Uh, when he perceives a potential threat or a problem, he has a palisade built around the settlement immediately to protect against any unwanted aggression from the natives. I mean, this is a smart guy. And he's certainly better than Thorvald's rather violent approach to handling the indigenous population. He seems to be thinking carefully about what he's doing. So then when trouble does arise, he devises a cunning plan to use the bull, which he's noticed the natives are afraid of. <laughs> so with the help of that bull, Thorfinn's group then wins the battle. It's not just that they ha- they they let the bull do all the work. They lead a battle with the bull and get it done when they're outnumbered. You got to think about the numbers game here. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's running, trying running to running the victory on a path of cow crap. It's a bull. Let's be let's be clear. <laughs> I, you just you're so pathetic. <laughs> but you know how to get to me, so that's good. Um, anyway, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that with Thorfinn's leadership, they don't have any more trouble from the natives for the rest of the time that they're there. That's pretty good, in my opinion. Also. While he's in Vinland, his son Snorri is born. So not only is he the first European to colonize North America, he's also the father of the first European to be born on the continent. Again, Which is probably his greatest claim. To th- honestly, I mean, to to stop, you know, casting shadow on your figure, this is probably his most important and impressive accomplishment from my perspective, is that his son is born in the New World. That's an amazing thing. And it it's does speak cool. to the settlement that they're building there. And since we're talking about his descendants, the saga concludes by making it very clear that Thorfinn and Guthrith's bloodline was very well respected. Mm-hmm. From them are descended Bishop Brand, Bishop Thorlak, and Bishop Bjorn. That's- Absolutely. And I think we should also pay attention to Thorfinn Karlsefni's own ancestors. If you connect the dots in Greenlander Saga and Lanama book, you find that Thorfinn's got some blue blood flowing in those veins. And the saga tells us that Thorfinn is the son of Thord Horsehead, mm-hmm. who was the son of Snorri Thordarson of Hofti. Now, do you know who Snorri's father was? Well, Thord. Yes, Thord of Hofti. And do you mm-hmm. know who his father was? It was Bjorn Butterbox. Now, put that nickname in your pipe and smoke it, pal. <laughs> now, his father was Hrold Spine. Another nice nickname for you. Yep. I think you'll recognize Hrold Spine's father. He's pretty famous. He goes by the name of Bjorn Ironside. Mm-hmm. And if uh, Thorfinn Karlsefni is a direct male descendant of Bjorn Ironside, well, that means he's the rightful heir of the none other than Ragnar Lothbrok. Absolutely right. So we bring it all full circle from Ragnar Lothbrok to Bishop Thorlak. I want to point out Thorfinn Karlsefni in the middle. I want to point out utterly irrelevant, but yeah. absolutely right. There you go. Well, you know, the sagas really emphasize uh, ancestry right. and descendants. You're right. So, so uh, no, it's true. Any descendant of Ragnar Lothbrok is going to be proud of being a descendant of Ragnar Lothbrok. And I'm proud to bring him on to my Thingman crew. So uh, you go ahead and try to beat that sucker. What do you got? Uh, well, let's see what I've got. Um, I've got a saga full of, uh, let's see, cowards, losers, <laughs> murder victims, <laughs> uh <laughs> Outlaws, right. uh, murderers, and a uh, yeah. Uh, so let's see. So let me see now. I've got three Ericsons. I've already got one, and I don't want the other two. No, I could take Goodrith, uh, who is a pretty interesting figure, 
Mm-hmm. In another saga, in Eric the Red Saga, perhaps I would have chosen her as a backup candidate because she has a very interesting kind of backstory and then a very interesting future. But both of those are kind of curtailed in this saga. She's just not that central a figure. We just talked a little while ago about why that might be, that this saga writer isn't terribly interested in the stories of women. Uh, but that means that she's a less interesting candidate for Thingman in this saga. Uh, there is Turkey the German, and I do love the idea of bringing in a guy who knows how to make wine because they made it extensively in his homeland. <laughs> uh, but he has a tendency to wander off AWOL, and I don't really think that's the kind of thing man I need. Uh, so where am I? Do you know who I'm taking? Are you taking the chieftain of the Skraelings who, uh, no. <laughs> who uh, wisely threw the axe into the ocean, adding some uh, much-needed diversity to your well, human group? he is tall and handsome, as we're told. Um, but <laughs> exactly. given that I don't even know his name, I think I'd be hard-pressed to uh, introduce him into my ranks. Right. But there is a man in this saga who's uh, got an impressive resume, an impressive lineage, an impressive future, impressive offspring. A claim to fame that no one else in the sagas can claim. And you've made the case very strongly Are you gonna... <laughs> that as a descendant of Ragnar Lothbrok, <laughs> uh, he is it. the heir to the Lothbrok name and throne. I'm taking Snorri Karlsefnison, sure. the first European born in the New World. Well, if that isn't pathetic, I don't know what it is. Oh, I don't think it's pathetic at all. I think Snorri, well, as, we're told, as we're told in the saga... Um, Snorri has, has married, uh, he takes care of his mother for a while. Um, and then when he marries, uh, he has a son named the hero here for for a guy who's complaining about a modern Christian. You chose the guy who's the son of the modern Christian and his claim to fame is taking care of his mother. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You you interrupted (laughs) me before I finished. You really want me to get started on this? Your claims to fame are he trades successfully for a time with the natives uh, which, by the way, is once. Yes. He trades successfully once with the, with the natives. <laughs> he builds a settlement, you said. You don't know. Which, just... he, which he abandons as soon as he gets scared. No, he was wise. He has one fight with the natives, spends the, he has one fight with the natives and says in the spring, this is a quote, uh, Carl Stephanie and his companions spent the entire winter there, but in the spring, Carl Stephanie declared that he wished to remain there no longer and wanted to return to Greenland. <laughs> Note that is that how he said it? Exactly. He and the companions spend the winter, but in the spring, he's the one who says, I want to go home. Uh, Snorri Karlsefnison is a dutiful son. He is a an important figure back in Iceland. He is the father of both Thorgir, uh, the father of Bishop Brand, and he is also the father of Halfrid, the mother of Bishop Thorlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's a vitally Ooh. important figure in the 11th century Icelandic transition over to Christianity. And again, he has this claim to fame that no other saga figure can match, that no other person in history can match of being the first European born in the New World. I'm proud to welcome Snorri Karlsefnison to my crew. Except you're not really, but uh, you made a nice effort to make it sound <laughs> like you were. And I appreciate that. I'm put it this way. I'm prouder of taking him than I would be of anyone else in the saga, and that includes Thorfinn and Karlsefni, yeah. who I would point out we both rejected last time we had a chance at him. Well, in favor of better people. But right. um, here's what I would say: I don't want to hear you mention Killer Stur again. Oh no, Snorri, Snorri, Snorri appears Snorri throughout appears. the saga. He's present at a no, battle. He does not. 
He's present in a battle. He's present when the scary um, mirror Guthrid shows up and starts creeping out his mother. Um, he uh-huh. appears in the final chapter of this saga as the father of two bishops and as a dutiful son and a good farmer. He appears in a quarter of the chapters in this saga. I can't be held responsible for it being a short saga. <laughs> Here's what you're telling me. He appears in the background. What you've basically done is you've chosen an extra from the background of each of those scenes. An extra? Snorri doesn't have a here's speaking what, part. Here's he what I will say. He doesn't do anything. Here's what I will he say. He's a passive individual. Go to Lansa Meadow and tell me that Snorri is an afterthought. Everything is named after him there. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually true. This is one of the things that brought him to my attention is that Everything up there is named for him, including the ship that they built in uh, Greenland and sailed over to Lonsa Meadow some years ago is named the Snorri mm-hmm. after Snorri Carl Sefnason. Here, here's what I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Snorri appears on no more than two pages how, in the how entire long saga. are we going to go with this? You had to go on and make a big <laughs> argument. You – the fact is you are just jockeying to get the last word. Maybe a little bit. Final rating. All right. Uh, we always start with all right. I don't know why we always start with all right. It's not all right. It's not all right, damn it. It's not all right. I was abused in the Thingman section. Once again, no wonder I have a complex. We were forced to choose Thorfinn Karlsefni and Snorri Karlsefni. It's never going to be all right again. <laughs> I, I don't know why you think. I still don't see anything wrong with Thorfinn Karlsefni. But uh, I know you got a problem with the guy. So. You did last time, which is why you scraped up uh, Killer Store before. Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> you love bringing. It, I told you, don't bring him up anymore. You picked Snorri. Two pages, oh, man. My God. So you opened up. That, that's a, that's a sign. Of, that's a sign of a thing that you're proud of. That you have to insist that I not bring him up. <laughs> no, no, I'm just tired of your bitching and moaning about the guy. I'm thinking of sending him over to wow. settle the score. Go on over. I'll have, I'll have Greta open the door. For you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time to evaluate this saga and uh, give it a rating on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, John, just how many 10s are you going to give this one? <laughs> uh, look, this, this is a fascinating saga. There's no doubt about it. Uh, so along with Eric's saga, it records one of the most universally significant events in medieval history. That's right. The, most, the first known landing in the New World by Europeans and the first known contact between Europeans and Indigenous Americans. And in at least one important way, this saga is more important than Eric's saga. Because Eric's saga is primarily interested in the story of Vinland as a stage for telling a story of religious conversion. Yes. While the Greenland author treats the conversion as an interesting historical side note in the story of the discovery and exploration of Vinland. Right. In reading Eric, we were struck by how many times the story broke down events based on who was Christian and who wasn't. Right? You think about uh, Gudra's discomfort with uh, pagan rituals. Or Thorhall the Hunter's prayers to Thor being repaid with a poisonous whale. Right? All these kind of odd moments. This time, we found it equally striking how uninterested the author seems to be in events in Greenland or Norway. Right? The places where the conversion narrative played out in Eric's saga. For example, did you notice this? Olaf Tryggvason isn't even mentioned in this saga. Yeah. And Leif's Christianity, it, all it says about Leif is that he's, uh, he's very moderate right. in all things. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a saga about the discovery of Vinland, not a, a saga about the conversion, even though those two things take place at the same time. And yet, John, you you know what uh, manuscript this uh, particular saga is found in, right? 
Yeah, it's a flattier book, right? That's right, and that and it's right in the uh, the heart of the extended saga of Olaf Tryggvason. So, you know, we were right in the midst mm-hmm. of a, a a long saga about uh, the guy who's converting all these places, but uh, this saga is not at all interested in conversion and Christianity. It's quite fascinating, right? It's a strange omission. It's almost like they meant to grab Eric's right. saga and they um, accidentally picked up Greenland, right? <laughs> Well, what you end up with, as we said, is two very different sagas about the exact same sequence of events, mm-hmm. which is very odd. Um, and as I think we've already made the argument, this saga is more interested in the importance of Eric's children to that Scandinavian claim on the New World, even though the other saga uh, is gives us much more information about Eric, or at least the surviving version does. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, this saga's interest in the historical event of the Vinland discovery uh, while it makes for great reading from an historical perspective, makes for a pretty scanty saga. And I think we've been indicating that throughout the judgment section. Ultimately, there's not a lot to say about this saga, uh, except from an historical perspective, right? Its literary merits are a bit thin. Apart from the occasional nods toward family politics through, say, the marriage of Gudrid, uh, or what's nearly the afterthought of a feud between Freydis and the Icelandic brothers Helgi and Finnbogi, there's very little saga structure here at all. I probably spent as much time reading scholarship for this saga as I did for Greta's saga, but it doesn't take long before the scholarship starts to repeat itself. Never has so much been written so well about so little. <laughs> Ultimately, everyone agrees that this is an interesting saga rather than, than an artistically accomplished one. I like this saga, I like history, and I loved visiting Lots of Meadows, so I can't really go below like a four, but I don't think I can go much above it either. So 4.5 it is. So you can't go much above it, but you will go above it. I said I can't go much above it. <laughs> and you lived up to I left to myself that. wiggle room. Yeah, I see that. Um, fascinating, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to agree with everything that you said. Um, I don't have anything to add other than um, <laughs> I think... Except for a number of your own, of course. Well, yeah, I'll add a number of my own. I'll also add this. I, I think I like this one a little bit better than Eric's saga. I think in terms of reading a saga, mm-hmm. Eric Eric's saga reads more like a saga. It has a, a very traditional kind of opening. We follow Eric on his journey, and we're comfortable in terms of the genre of saga fiction or, or history or whatever you want to call it um, while reading that one. With Greenlander, yes. it does not have that narrative tone, narrative flow that uh, Eric's has. It really reads mm-hmm. almost like a chronicle. It's very, very quick. It's almost a year by year. This happened, then this happened. It's very, very dry in that mm-hmm. regard. Um, there's not the kind of character development and not the kind of development of scenes that you would, you'd might find in Eric Saga. And yet, you get the interactions with the Skraelings. And for whatever reason, those fascinate me um, far more than anything that happens in Eric Saga. Um, I think it's something about the uh, <laughs> the time period that this is written in. The fact that it's it's well before you know we traditionally or or in terms of American education, anyways, traditionally think of uh, Europeans interacting with the New World. Um, there's something quite beautiful and wonderful about those interactions, um, especially because I think the Europeans mm-hmm. be- come off in a fairly negative light. Interestingly enough. Um, and for that, I, I would tend to agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think for that reason, I think it's a it's a better saga. Um, I don't know what I gave Eric. I didn't go back and look at it. Um, I don't think that this is a good saga, though. And as you said, there's not a there's no literary merit. There's nothing really to hold it together. It's just a series of very very brief episodes. Most of these chapters are about a page and a half. 
Um, and, and not very much happens in that page and a half each time. So uh, I'm going to give it... And there aren't very many of them. No. So that's why I'm giving it a 3.5. That said, um, for anyone who's listening, uh, this is a must read. If you are a North American <laughs> or interested in Vikings in any yep. land, you have to read the Vinland Sagas. It's uh, one, some of the most important stuff that uh, comes right. out of saga literature in terms of uh, connections with the modern world. Right. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've we've given low ratings to both of the Vinland Sagas now. Uh, I did look up our numbers, by the way, and uh, you actually gave the, uh, the the Eric Saga a four. So you've actually gone down half a point. Ah, uh, can I go to revise um, my I've Eric? I've gone up a full point from my rating. <laughs> No, you cannot. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think your point is well taken that it's – though we're rating these as sagas, their their significance as a kind of a, a piece of literature, as a piece of historical literature is almost unparalleled. I think uh, – yeah, if so, you want to think of it in terms of documents. Although they aren't the greatest examples of the saga writer's art, right. they are fantastic documents of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we uh, conclude, I want to ask you one more question, John. Okay. Of the two sagas, traditionally Eric's saga is considered the more reliable. And I'm wondering how you feel about that, having read both of them now um, and thought about them a little bit more deeply maybe mm-hmm. than we did while we were in grad school. I Honestly, when you read these, there's a, the part of me that has spent time on things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle or on the, uh, uh, the Scotty Chronicon or on um, Saxo Grammaticus – Wants to trust the Greenlander saga mm-hmm. for exactly the reason that you just described. Yes. It reads like a chronicle. It reads like something that is conversant with history. Uh, and Eric's saga includes all these elements. I mean, you know, the poisoned whale and things like that, uh, that read more like the flourishes of a saga. Yes. Uh, and I don't mean that sagas have no history in them. I mean that, you know, when it comes to which I would prefer to rely on, I'll take the chronicles over the stories. Uh, but that said, I I honestly, I'm not sure that I've come to a decision about which one is more reliable now. I'm probably less likely to take uh, the opinion of most scholars, which is that Eric's is more reliable. Uh, but I'm not sure that I'm willing to make an argument for Greenlanders yet. Uh, I think both of them, read in tandem, give you a pretty good idea of what's going on. But I don't know that either one of them uh, is something that I'd want to like make bank on. I think I like what you said in the summary episode. You really need to take both of these sagas together and disregard the specific details and focus on the general outline of the events that occur. Someone definitely discovered the New World by accident. The Greenlanders sent expeditions to Vinland and attempted to settle the land, but failed in the end for a variety of reasons. You know, it might have something to do with the hostility of the Skraelings, but, you know, I suspect it has as much to do with the climate and the economy of Europe than anything else. You know, whatever the case, the Vinland sagas may not be brilliant, but they're incredibly important. I couldn't agree more. Uh, so anyway, that's a 4.5 from me mm-hmm. and a 3.5 from Andy. And if you have a different opinion or if you just want to explain to us in detail what we got wrong, please contact us through Twitter at SagaThingPod or at uh, or on Facebook at SagaThingPodcast. Or if you're conversant with Morse code, you can send us a wireless message through your local Marconi station at Dot 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 dash 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 dot dot dash dash dot 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 dash dot dot dash dash dot. Thank you, John. And of course, you can always leave a review of the podcast on on iTunes, which is greatly appreciated. You know, we get a lot of compliments about our work on this podcast via email and through Twitter and Facebook, and we love all of that. If everyone just took a moment to share those lovely thoughts on iTunes, we could reach a lot more people. 
And don't forget, if you have any pictures of yourself with commemorative statues, mysterious rocks, or other items of significance to the sagas, please do send them along and we'll add them to the site. You know, I actually have a, a brilliant picture of Thingveller in winter that was sent recently by our one of our listeners, Martin McCann, who just got back from a trip to Iceland. You know, he binge listened to our podcast to help prepare him for the trip, as a lot of people have done, and he found us well, rather excellent. entertaining, or so he says. Well, it's a man of excellent taste. Yeah. Thank you, Martin. I'm sure you're a lovely fellow yourself. Uh, be sure to send us a picture of yourself with a cool statue if you have one. Now, I should also mention that your interview with Loretta Decker has been getting rave reviews. Has it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You need to check Hooray. out our social media a little bit more often. Maybe our email. <laughs> you know, people want to talk to you, John. I'm really more the Art Garfunkel of the group, and Paul Simon was always the attraction. Ouch! <laughs> you realize Art Garfunkel listens to our podcast, don't you? Oh, does he now? Well, I won't besmirch his name further. I'm proud to be the Art Garfunkel. No, don't, don't, don't worry. Don't kiss his butt. He doesn't really listen. <laughs> okay. And the analogy doesn't even work. Art Garfunkel was known for being a great singer. Paul Simon was the great songwriter. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how you're either one of those in this relationship. Oh, all right then. Well, can I be, uh, you know, can we be Hall and Oates maybe? Do you even know the difference between the two? I think I do. Uh, is uh, Daryl Hall the blonde one? That's Daryl Hall. All right. Well, you know, he, I think he's notoriously grumpy. So uh, that's really more your <laughs> territory. So I'm mm-hmm. going to be the John Oates to your Daryl Hall. And just what exactly does Oates bring to the table? Aside from his dashing good looks. I, I think he's contributed to the songwriting and did some backing vocals. Uh, occasionally took the reins and did the lead. And he, I, I don't know exactly. I'm making this up. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to Wikipedia the thing. It's just a silly comparison. Fair enough. You be my John Oates. I will. Uh, but I demand you perm your hair and trim the beard away to a mustache. Well, you know, I'll consider the perm, but the beard stays. All right, listeners. So here's a fun activity for you. What famous duo do Andy and I not remind you of? <laughs> not remind you. <laughs> Post your thoughts on our Facebook and Twitter. Oh, great. Yeah. See, well, I'm sure that's going to go over very well. In the meantime, we're off for December break. That's right. Uh, but we will be back in January with the saga of Finn Bogey the Mighty. And until then... Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy holidays. Bye for now. Hang on, I gotta let the dog out. Goodbye, doggy. It was me! (laughs) I let the dog out!